Definition of a cold case. An unsolved criminal investigation as of a homicide or abduction that has stopped being actively pursued because of a lack of evidence. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The case is pursued diligently by various detectives, but eventually abandoned and filed away among other cold cases. Jonathan Yardley, The Washington Post, February 9, 2014. As defined, cold cases occur when there is little evidence presented that can lead to a conviction or resolution of a case. They are often forgotten, lost to time, as the decades roll past. While these cases may not have resolutions, it does not mean that they are less important than any other case. There are victims out there and their families who have never gotten justice that they so deserve. We seek to share those stories, to keep those cases alive as much as possible, so that the victims and their families know that their loved ones are not just another unsolved case. They matter. This is Cold and Buried, hosted by Nat Slater and Ashley. There are victims out there who remain unidentified. Their names are unknown, their lives a mere guess as to who they may have once been. One thing we know for sure, though, is that whoever these unidentified descendants may have been in life, they are missed, loved, and they mattered. This is an episode about two of these such cases. According to an article posted by Stanford for Futurity.org, forensic genetic genealogy has cleared more than 400 cases in the U.S. In recent years, we are seeing exponential growth in the closure and positive identifications of unidentified descendant cases across the United States. Many of these cases are decades old, some even crossing into the near-century cold case timelines. This is most certainly due to the rise in use of FGG, or forensic genetic genealogy, being utilized to match descendants to one another and finally give names back to those who aren't able to advocate for themselves due to being unknown. We can only hope that in time, more and more cases will find themselves solved utilizing this science, and perhaps then no one will remain unknown and they all will be given back their identities. Our cases today were both born biologically as male and female, respectively. We may use the term he, she periodically for pronouns, as well as they, them, based on what we found in our research, which led us to believe that these were the appropriate pronouns based on current evidence. Today we discuss two of these types of cases, both of which remained unsolved to this day. They are both decade-old cases that we can only hope will be solved in the near future, more than likely with the help of FGG, to give these victims their names back. So join us, nerdlings, as we venture down the paths of history into the unknown as we learn more about the cases of two lost souls who remain unknown to this day. I will take you through the case of the only unidentified victim, as of now, of a heinous serial killer, a young teen who deserves to be known by his real name, not just the nickname he's been given, which is the Swimsuit Boy. On August 9, 1973, authorities made a horrible discovery of five bodies in a boat shed in Houston, Texas. Four of those bodies have been identified, while one still remains as an unidentified descendant. The unidentified victim goes by the name of Swimsuit Boy. Swimsuit Boy was discovered wearing the following items at the time of their death. 
striped multicolored swim trunks. And you can actually look all of these items up on the internet. And to me, the color looks to be red, blue, and gray, or like a white. A gray shirt with a peace sign symbol on it with the lettering USMC in a peace sign and L84MF written just below the peace sign on the back of a t-shirt. Brown cowboy boots, a leather ankle bracelet, and corduroy pants that were dark blue. Swimsuit Boy's characteristics are as followed from the unidentified wiki website. He had brown hair, which was 7 inches in length, and they measured from the, the top of his crown. Good dental hygiene, no fillings. Um, a mild form of spina bifida, which is when the spinal cord develops improperly, which also kind of made me think maybe this could have affected his stride. Chronic irritation of sternal end of clavicles. So that's your collarbone, but the sternal end, so towards the rib cage. So that makes me think of maybe an athlete, a swimmer. Based on the information provided by the DNA Doe Project, this unidentified descendant might have gone missing one to two years prior, so 1971 or 1972. It is believed that they were 17 to 20 years of age, and that they stood around 5'2 to 5'7, and they were a white Caucasian male. There are a lot of reconstructions of this unidentified descendant, so a quick Google search and you will be able to see this sweet young boy. If you are deep into the true crime world, you're probably wondering how this unidentified descendant was found with four other bodies. I didn't want to make this episode about the killer of this unidentified descendant, but I feel it is important for the context in this case. Dean Coral was a serial killer in the 70s who murdered at least 28 people, specifically all male. Dean wasn't alone in these horrific murders. He had an accomplice. Two, actually. One named Elmer Wayne Henley, and the other David Brooks. Elmer and David were teenagers themselves, they were only 18, and would help Dean, who was 34, lure the boys to their demise. Elmer is quoted in the Philadelphia Inquirer on August 12, 1983, as saying, quote, I'd tell them we were going to go visit and party a little, unquote. He then went on to say that the victims were all teenage boys. Quote, there were no girls. Coral got mad when I brought my girlfriend the last time, but I've taken girls there before, unquote. In 1973, the same year Swimsuit Boy was found, Elmer had gotten into an altercation with Dean and shot him, ultimately killing him. This is when Elmer confessed to authorities what they had been doing and brought the authorities to the shed where the five bodies were found. Swimsuit Boy is the only victim of these monsters that hasn't been identified. And when asked about the boy, Elmer and David had no recollection. They had been present for a large number of the boy's murders, but they couldn't recall Swimsuit Boy. A mother of one of the victims had said in a newspaper that the fact that all of the missing boys were from the same neighborhood should have alerted the police. This unidentified descendant has been unidentified for 50 years now. Many missing persons have been investigated for this case, but all have been ruled out, including a missing male named Bobby French, who looked very similar to the reconstructions of Swimsuit Boy. Like with every unidentified descendant case, it just boggles my mind that no one can identify this young boy. 
The 70s don't feel like that long ago. As a 30-year-old, a lot of people my age have parents that were born in the 50s. Someone has to know something. Show your family or friends and have the conversation. If you know something about this unidentified descendant, please call the Crime Stoppers of Houston. You can do so anonymously at 713-222-TIPS. Again, that's 713-222-TIPS. And I, I just want to point out, um, obviously, this is not just pinpointed to Houston. This could be anywhere. So if you have, I don't know, a memory of, of this this boy and the swim trunks that were striped and had the peace sign, just just call who whatever Crime Stoppers number you have in your state or just local authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but some questions I had that I wanted to discuss with you, Nat... Why didn't the police immediately start to see the pattern when these teen boys were coming up missing from the same location? Like, doesn't that seem pretty obvious? Yeah, that was the first thing that stood out to me is that he was abducting 28 young men from the local area. It it should have definitely raised some red flags, I would have thought. I think at that point, due to ages, I'm going to guess most of the missing uh, men were probably teenagers uh, or young 20s, which we know from previous cases what that typically tracks to be is that they're usually dismissed as runaway cases, which is very rarely actually ever the case. Yeah, I was was thinking that as well because also this victim might have been 18 or over and usually when authorities are called in, they're like, oh, well, they're an adult, so we exactly. can't really do too much as of right now. So I th- think, unfortunately, in this case, too, we do see, like, I, I don't want to say negligence, but I-, I think that maybe dots weren't put together as quickly as they probably should have been. Yeah, definitely. We know a lot more now than we knew in the 70s mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And, I mean, they definitely still should have done their due diligence, but... In this case, it doesn't seem like they they probably did. So, Nat, do you think the young accomplices were groomed by Coral? That's a tricky one. I was wondering that while I was um, listening. I'm fairly familiar with this case. I believe that was actually the defense that those two men took was more on the lines that he scared them into doing it. I don't want to say that's not true. Um, I, I would lean towards probably a healthy mix of both. I think that they probably were scared of Coral. Um, Obviously, this guy is a serial killer. He is a mass murderer. I would be scared, absolutely. So I don't want to accuse them of not having fear of this man by any means. With that said, I do think he probably started grooming them from, I'm not sure how long their relationship was. Do you know, Ash? I believe it was the three to four years that they were committing these crimes. But I mean, it could have been earlier, though. Yeah. If they were 18 when they shot Coral, then yeah, they would have only been 14, 14 year old boys. Yeah, because I, I was reading that, like I said, I didn't want to make this episode about Dean Coral or mm-hmm. any of the other boys, but I was reading that the reason the altercation that Dean and Henley got in was Henley actually went to Dean and was like, I'm done doing this. This has gone too far. Oh. Yeah. So he was, he was already feeling guilt. Yep. So then maybe, yeah, maybe they were groomed. Uh, Maybe, like I said, an intimidation factor in this for sure. I feel comfortable saying Coral was definitely the ringleader. I don't know if these two boys would have murdered 
without him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I know that testing has been done, but I was actually surprised because when I went on, I was on the DNA Doe project and actually this case has kind of been halted as of right now. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe it's because... Maybe they have a possible match? Yeah, I don't know. Or um, I know that in like 2021, there was a bunch of news reports saying that they were looking into Dean Coral's backyard and house again because they think he might oh. have another 20 plus victims. Shoot. Yeah, that's crazy. I wouldn't be surprised. He was in his mid-30s when he died, so that's a long that's a long time to be active before he died. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because I'm not I, I mean I, I've tried looking it up and I don't know why they have halted it, but Yeah. It's very possible Coral murdered the young man known as Swimsuit Boy either before the boys were involved or at a time when they weren't there. He's not gonna just wait for them to show up to to murder. He's not. So there are chances are very high that there are victims out there that these two boys never even knew about. Yeah, that's I because I did I was also reading that Dean actually did go out on his own. Yeah, some nights I could see that he has that kind of predatory behavior going on here. That I think it was convenient to have the two teens do some of the bidding for him. It was probably easier to get victims that way. You know, he could send them out to a club, what have you. It's Houston, so. I'm sure there was a night scene. He could send them out, get them to lure teenage men back, and then he would murder the boys that they brought home. I'm guessing is how it probably went down. So there are definitely going to be times, though, where that's not convenient and he's not going to wait for them to show up. Yeah, that's true. Do you think that Swimsuit Boy was a runaway or a possible transient? Because, I mean, if all of mm. these boys are missing in the same location how come no one knows who this this boy is it's possible that up until he was murdered he could have been maybe um it was 1970s and if he was homosexual then it's very possible that he was estranged from his family which not necessarily a runaway situation but maybe just not in touch with his family so then no one would be able to report him missing if that makes sense mm -hmm. It could be he's from a different state completely, which is what I'm leaning towards, or a different city. Um, Texas is a big state. He could have been from anywhere, and they coerced him back, and that's how Coral got him. And it's very possible his family never knew what happened to him. Yeah, so I had this thought, too, because um, seeing as he was wearing a USMC shirt... I would think that stands for United States Marine Corps. Oh, and I, I was got that. yeah, I was thinking because I grew up as a military child. Luckily, I didn't move as much as my brothers did, but we moved around a lot. So I'm wondering maybe maybe this family had moved to Texas because I'm sure there's a, a base there. How old was Swimsuit Boy thought to have been? Um, they were saying 17 to 20, but I've also seen a lot of other sites say even younger. Okay, so he could, theoretically he could be of age to be in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Which back then we had the very heavy don't ask, don't tell situation in the military, unfortunately. So that could lend itself to the secrecy around his identity. Yep. So yeah, honestly, I feel like the clothing is going to be the biggest factor in identifying who Swimsuit Boy is because um, I was also reading that the swim trunks that he was wearing were a pretty, like, top dollar brand. Oh, wow. So he had money. 
I believe it was called Catalina was the brand, but um, they're they're a pretty pricey set of swim trunks. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, so either he had money or someone bought them for him that had money. Exactly, yep. Is it possible that Coral bought them for him? I don't know. So I don't know. I didn't look super far into Coral. I'm not sure how long his relationships lasted with his victims. That's what I was wondering. I didn't know off the top of my head. I don't think it was very long. I think it was within... I feel like he usually would just strike as soon as they were brought back. So Yeah, yep. I feel like that probably isn't very realistic, but I'd be curious on that one. We'll have to to explore that a little more. Mm -hmm. So we've seen leaps and bounds towards equality in the LGBTQ plus community. And there's obviously still a lot of work to be done. Um, But back then, do you think homophobia was prevalent in this case? Oh, yeah. I I think that's pretty safe to say. I mean, 28 young men come up missing. More often than not, many were part of the LGBTQ community. So they were probably being targeted. And I mean, they were marginalized group for sure back then especially so it was just prime for for Dean Coral to strike I think it unfortunately worked in his favor that investigators weren't so quick to put together the pieces and realize that 28 young men in this area have gone missing maybe there's a problem you know exactly yeah like that's a pretty big red flag right there yeah yeah I'm gonna go with purely my personal opinion on this but Given the years and the situation, I'm going to guess it was probably, unfortunately, one of those cases that was pushed to the side because of homophobia. So, Yeah. I, 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 unfortunately, I think the same as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a case that leaves a lot of questions with little to no answers as of right now. And like I said before, Dean Coral might even have more victims on top of... Mm-hmm. Like, he might have 20 more victims, Jeez. is what the article was saying that I read. We can only hope that with time, patience, and forensic genetic genealogy, that swimsuit boy will finally be given his name back, and his family can be given some form of closure. For now, we will remember swimsuit boy and keep his story alive, dusting off the ice and dust from his case in hopes that one day he will be buried with his true birth name. While we often see cases that are decades old, like the one Ash just shared of the swimsuit boy, there are other cases that are cold cases that are not nearly 50 years old. One of these cases, the Danby Jane Doe, or as she's also known as the Rutland County Jane Doe, was a victim whose partial skull was discovered in the rural town of Danby, Vermont, back in 2012. Her case is one of these such cases. Danby, Vermont isn't a big city by any means. It's located in the southern region of Vermont in Rutland County. Danby exudes the quintessential New England town vibes with a population of just over 1,200 people as of the year 2000 census. It was the home to renowned writer and winner of the Pulitzer Prize Award, as well as the 1938 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, author Pearl S. Buck. Danby isn't a place where you expect bad things to happen. Murders aren't common here, and the history of the town is full of marble mining due to the largest underground marble mine existing within the location. It's as quaint a New England town as they come. That was until 2012, when a local resident stumbled across the darkness that can exist in any place within this vast world. On February 12th, 2012, A local resident of Danby was driving down Danby Hill Road 
when something caught their attention lying near the side of the road. It was a quiet dirt road that is located near Route 7. The area is littered with farms and fields and even some New England homes that are sprinkled throughout the area. It isn't a heavily traveled location. It is like much of Vermont, rural in nature. The resident pulled over to the side of the road to get a better look at the object that had caught their attention. It was then that they recognized what looked to be a partial human skull laying near the side of the dirt road. They would immediately alert the police to their findings by gathering up the skull section and bringing it to the police station. Investigators would then go to the location the skull was found, but no additional remains or any personal artifacts of the victim were or have ever been found. Initially, investigators reported the skull to belong to that of a female Caucasian woman between the ages of 15 to 40 years of age. According to the Vermont State Medical Examiner's Office, it looked as if the skull showed potential evidence of trauma, leading the investigators to suspect foul play was her cause of death. The Vermont State Police went on to secure the location in Danby where the victim's skull had been found, but never located any other articles of clothing or belongings of the unknown woman. It is unknown if any additional searches from the Vermont State Police have been conducted in the years since her remains have been found. One theory put forth by police was that the victim's skull may have been carried towards that dirt road by an animal, and canine dogs were used in the search for further remains, but nothing has ever come from that search. Vermont State Police reviewed missing person cases throughout the state, looking for any potential female Caucasian disappearances that would align with the partial skull that was found along Danby Hill Road in 2012. After re-examination and a DNA analysis were conducted on the skull, it was actually determined that the skull belonged to that of an Asian female descendant, not that of a Caucasian female descendant, leading to a full rule-out of all current missing women and teens within the state of Vermont as none of the missing were known to have been of Asian descent. It is now thought that the Danby Jane Doe may not have been someone from the state of Vermont. It is possible that she was a murder victim whose body was dumped in the rural town, or perhaps she was the victim of human trafficking. Analysis showed that the Danby Jane Doe was more than likely murdered between the years of 1990 and 2005 based on the condition of her remains that were found. Granted, as we all know, this is not an exact time frame as her remains were more than likely moved by animals before discovery, so it's possible the remains could be slightly older or even newer than the date range that's given. Many missing women have been ruled out as being that of the Danby Jane Doe, such as still missing teen Brianna Maitland, New Hampshire's missing Maura Murray, and Heidi Don Wilbur, who went missing in 1991 and has never been found. These women were ruled out due to their ethnicity being that of Caucasian women versus the now-known skull belonging to a female of Asian descent. I, for one, have many questions regarding the discovery of Danby Jane Doe's remains. Her case is largely unknown, with very little publicity being given to this young woman. Her case is not one that most people even within our little state know about which doesn't help when we are looking to identify an unknown descendant, as no one can give a tip if they don't even know much about the crime in the first place. Why would we not, as a state, be sharing her information all over the place in hopes of gaining attention for this young woman who so tragically had her life taken from her? 
Unfortunately, in the state of Vermont, it does not allow for records to be obtained in regard to what they consider to be, quote, active investigations, regardless of the fact that no updates have actually been given on her case since 2013 or so. So we do not know if any DNA testing or forensic genetic genealogy has been done on her remains at this time. For now, all we can do for this poor woman is share her story and try to get as much attention to her case as possible. She should not be forgotten, and she did matter to someone out there. So she, like so many others, will remain in our hearts as we hope for updates or a possible identification or even a possible reconstruction that can be done with some of her remains. At this time, no reconstruction exists for this victim, which is detrimental to her case as it stands. Many artists, such as Anthony Redgrave of Redgrave Research, are able to render reconstructions from skulls that are missing sections and fragments. So it is possible that there may be enough of her skull intact to create a likeness sketch that would go to help efforts to identify her. I hope that the Vermont State Police are in the process of trying to obtain a reconstruction of this victim, as that is the only way anyone is going to be able to identify her without the use of FGG for identification. If you or someone you know has any relevant information on the case of the Dan B. Jane Doe, please reach out to the Vermont State Police, the Rutland Barracks, at 802-773-9101. Yeah, this, this case definitely gives you more questions than answers, for sure. And it's actually a fairly unknown case. Uh, I, I was not familiar with it until... I came across it in some research I was doing last year, I think. And so I've kind of had it earmarked as a case I wanted to cover um, the next time we were doing unidentified descendant cases. So with that, I have got some questions for you, Ash, just to get your thoughts on the case. But mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about the reconstruction not being done at this time? Do you think that that's hurting this case? I do. I do think it's hurting the case. Um, the one thing that always sticks in my mind is when we were talking with Anthony and Lee Redgrave Mm -hmm. about how Anthony had said a lot of people don't really, not not that they don't really care, but cases don't really stick out to them when there's no face. Yeah, human, the way our mind works, we need to be able to actually identify and recognize certain features before we can start to, it's almost like a memory piece, that having a visual memory goes along with an um, oral memory. So in this case, when you don't have a physical image of the person or even just a simple possible composite sketch, it makes identification almost impossible. It's it's rare that cases like this without a reconstruction get solved. Almost always the ones getting solved have reconstructions done. So it's super important to get one done for her. Yeah, definitely. So we can only hope that that's in the process of being done. We, We understand that it does take a long time to do so. Uh, Another question I would have for you is one thing that stood out to me was that the timeline of her disappearance or of her possible disappearance was in the same time frame of 1977 between 1987. We saw a huge um, increase in women who were abducted and then murdered, their remains being left in remote locations, such as actually Danby. I believe another victim had been found there a few years before. Do you think it's possible, Ash, that maybe she's one of the victims from Connecticut River Valley Killer? 
which was an unidentified um, serial killer who stalked supposedly along the Connecticut River Valley during 1977 to 87, but Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% convinced he stayed along the river. Yeah, that's a tough one because I kind of feel that the Connecticut River Valley killer liked to kind of make a show Mm -hmm. of his killings. We don't know how the remains were here. Yeah, and the fact that it was just a piece of skull kind of, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I could definitely see it being the Connecticut River Valley killer because we have no idea how many victims he had when it's all boiled down. And if this was on like a main highway, Mm -hmm. um, a main like trucking route, as we had speculated, um, that it seemed to be all like main roads. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the only thing that is tripping me up is the fact that only a piece of the skull was found and not the entire body. I believe it is a... I'm not sure the exact form, but I think it is probably missing her jaw is what I'm assuming from what I've read. There's not details on what part of the skull is missing, but I think it is more than just a small fragment. Yeah. As far as I understood. What What do you think about that? Do you think... I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence. I do think it's interesting that we have another woman here who doesn't seem to belong to anyone in the state that has been found... I don't know. Someone definitely dumped her body here. That's for sure. I would guess it's that or another killer could have just gone through the state and unfortunately just left her remains, although that is a dirt road, so I'm kind of surprised by that. Usually that lends itself to somebody who knows the area, or at least knows the area enough. Yeah, I don't know on that one. I, I lean towards maybe even a human trafficking case or possibly someone from, from a different area. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because Vermont is the, we're kind of like the main area, even even for drug trafficking with all the yep. other big cities around us in Montreal. Absolutely. I could definitely see sex trafficking being in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about the lack of publicity that's been shown on her case? I think it's awful because yeah. I had no idea until you told me about this case. Um, and that is the, the big main factor on solving these cases is talking about it and knowing about it and yeah. I had no idea and and we've lived in Vermont for a long time so I feel like this is something that should be on our radar absolutely um, I was surprised that she was another Jane Doe here because my understanding was Chantel Sorier was the other last of the Jane Doe's that we had outside of the Addison County Jane Doe and her children but that is a almost 100 year old case so I was pretty surprised when I found the Danby Jane Doe which leads me to wanting to investigate more and see if I can find if there are other Jane and John Doe's out there. You know, considering it's been 10 years this year, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about her case in recent months. Um, But I haven't heard anything uh, out of anybody about her case. So I kind of feel like we're overdue to have an update or at least try to get it out there, get people to pay attention, um, get it publicized more. So that was also partly why I wanted to cover this case in here. Yeah, and I feel like Vermont is very buttoned up. You know, like, we don't even have a Crime Stoppers over here. You know, there's not a lot going on with unsolved cases. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're just kind of stagnant. And the fact that a lot of cases normally are like, oh, it's the 10-year anniversary of since we found this skull. You know, there's normally, like, different... There's new newscasters talking about it and getting things going. and But yeah, I haven't, I have never heard of this case. Yeah, I don't think a lot's been covered on her, unfortunately. So who do you think she could have been? 
So I was thinking about this and um, a lot of farms have workers from other states or other countries that come in to help. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, since Danby is such a vast farming area, Mm -hmm. she could have very well been a farm worker that had come from another state or another country. Absolutely. I hadn't thought of that. The other thing, too, we've seen pretty consistently incorrect misgendering of unidentified descendants, especially with just a skull to go off of. So... I'm hesitant to to trust that this is 100% a female. So Mm -hmm. it's possible this could be male, too. So I just want to throw that out there, that it's very possible that this is not... Like, I don't know how much the identification has gone for DNA on decisively being born female. But I think that's kind of important to point out, too, is that we have seen cases where unidentified descendants are misgendered. So... This could be one of those situations, too, which would also explain why they haven't had many leads on identifying the person because people are looking for the wrong gender. Yeah, and I also wondered, because we've also seen cases where authorities are like, this is definitely A versus B, like they have everything sorted out. Then there's a small little thing that's like, oh, wait, actually, we didn't have that right. And that's the whole yep. thing that solved the case. So I, I always wonder since they originally thought this skull was of Caucasian descent, how did they Mm -hmm. figure out that it was Asian descent, you know? Yeah, I couldn't find the exact way they determined it, just that DNA had been done, and I think a re-examination was done. So it sounds like that probably came about maybe a year or so later, not too much longer after her initial remains were found. So, I mean, there's a lot of damage done to remains that are left out in the wild. That's just a given, so... It's not foolproof. I think unless DNA has been done, it's pretty hard to to determine. Mm-hmm. Um, just off of like a skull section, I would assume would be pretty hard to to determine gender off of. So, what do you think about possibly being like Chantel? Maybe she's a runaway. That yeah, that's that's very possible. From maybe Montreal. Yeah, because I mean, like I said, we're we're kind of in the middle of all the hubs. Like we've right. got Boston close to us. Um, like Hartford, Connecticut, not like super close, but definitely like drivable within a day. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Montreal. Yeah, there's lots of places that our victim could have come from. Absolutely. I would lean more towards they were not from from Vermont. Did, did they um, say the age or no? Uh, the age range is 15 to 40. Oh, so, wow. But yeah. originally when they were found... They had had a much more limited range of, I think it was 15 to 20. And then after the re-examination, they increased that up to 40. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a long time. Yeah. And so yeah, it was 1990 to like 2000 something, right? That's a 15-year radius, 1990 to wow. 2005 approximately. So yeah. like I said, it could definitely fall into the 1980s territory where we did have a known highway killer running around. So... It's very possible that maybe she was an unknown victim from that. Or some other truck driver coming through, or a domestic abuse situation, or a human trafficking situation. There are a lot of scenarios that, unfortunately, this Mm -hmm. poor woman could have been a part of. Yeah. I guess at the end of the day, we can just, you know, keep her story alive, keep it fresh, and share it so that more people know. We'll keep our eyes open on this one, so... If we hear any updates, we're, we're definitely going to be sharing them. Mm-hmm. 
So I think with that, nerdlings, that kind of ends our cases today. Uh, You know, they do still endure. Their families still have no real closure. And these victims still remain unidentified. And their cases are still cold cases. We can only hope that in time, their cases will become unburied and we will finally know just who the swimsuit boy and the Danby Jane Doe were in life. Then their names can be given back to them and we can all mourn for their passing as no one deserves to be left in a box somewhere or in an unmarked grave that no one visits. We are a community and it is up to us to keep their memories alive so that they are never forgotten. So this concludes this chapter in Cold and Buried. Thank you for listening and please share these stories as much as you can. It's important to get the word out there as someone needs to advocate for them. Everyone deserves their name back. If you have a cold case you would like to have us feature on our show, please send us an email at coldandburiedpodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to try and feature it. Thanks for listening and we will catch you nerdlings on the next episode of Cold and Buried.